As U.S. forces continue to exit from Afghanistan almost exactly 20 years since they invaded the country, the Taliban is rapidly capturing one provincial capital after another. What comes next in Afghanistan? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program comes to you three days a week. We can only produce this independent and free programming with the support of our listeners. If you are not yet a supporter, please go to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and become a subscriber today. We are happy to be joined today by Mike Preisner. Mike is a producer with Empire Files. Check out their work at empirefiles.tv and their Patreon at patreon.com forward slash empirefiles. Mike, welcome back to The Socialist Program. Thanks for having me, Brian. Mike, as we said in our introduction, city after city in Afghanistan is falling to the Taliban. I'm looking at the top stories. If you just put in Afghanistan news in a search engine. Here's the headlines. U.S. officials warn collapse of Afghan capital could come sooner than expected. Panic grips Afghanistan as civilians flee Taliban's relentless advance. Here's from the Wall Street Journal. What will happen to women of Afghanistan? Here's from AP. Taliban complete Northeast Afghan blitz as more cities fall. Here's from BBC. Afghanistan war. Army chief replaced as Taliban sees more cities. Mike, we are watching history, a very dramatic part of history, unfold in front of us. All of this is happening after the U.S. government, after the Biden administration, has announced that the U.S. is leaving Afghanistan by September 11th, 2021, the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, the attacks that took down the World Trade Center, took down part of the Pentagon, and led to what was called by the Bush administration the War on Terror. Almost one month later, October 7th, 2001, The U.S., along with NATO allies, invaded Afghanistan. This is, as it's been described in the media, the U.S. longest war. But the U.S. is leaving and recognizing quite clearly that the government that they put into place, what many called a puppet government or a proxy regime, is collapsing, and the U.S. has decided not to save it. Anyway, I want to get your thoughts. Sure. Well, you know, there was just a new intelligence assessment that was leaked that predicts that the government, the U.S.-backed government will fall within 90 days and some experts in that report saying that it'll be just 30 days before the central government falls to the Taliban. I think an example of, you know, how rapidly and and significant this is happening 
is Kunduz, which is a major city in the north. I mean, this isn't the farmland, little villages type cities that people are, you know, maybe used to seeing on the news. I mean, this is a major city. It has an airport. It's pretty densely populated. This city was taken over by the Taliban just a few days ago. And the health officials say they have 14 bodies in the morgue from that takeover. And so that would imply that there wasn't major resistance from the Afghan government defending this city if they only have 14 bodies in the morgue. So that kind of speaks to, you know, one of the reasons that the dominoes are falling so quickly, the Afghan military, you know, which soldiers generally complain of not being paid for months and things like that, just aren't putting up much of a fight in some of these places, but but in others there are. But I think the significant thing here is that this intelligence assessment that says the government will fall to the Taliban probably within 30 days, maybe they can extend that out a little while. That has basically been the intelligence assessment for about the past decade, pretty much ever since Obama's troop surge, which completely failed to turn back any momentum or power of the Taliban. So the generals in the Pentagon and officials in Washington, those who you know cared to even look at what's going on in Afghanistan, I would imagine a lot of American politicians just didn't concern themselves with it. But they have known for 10 years or more that no matter what, no matter if they stayed for 10 years, 20 years, nothing they could do militarily on the ground would create a situation where the Taliban would not take over if there was a U.S. withdrawal. And so the question that they have been you know, muddling over for a decade is how many more lives do we sacrifice to delay the inevitable? When will it be politically convenient to leave and have the Taliban take over? Or should we just stay literally forever? Because the only thing preventing a Taliban takeover is US forces on the ground, ground troops on the ground that can call in air support and artillery, which is the only real you know, advantage that they have over the Taliban. So it's been this, this lost war and the generals and politicians have known it's been a lost war for most of the duration of the war. And so the kind of shock now that you see in the media, those stories you just mentioned, I mean, it's not a surprise to anyone on the inside of the establishment. They've known that this is the inevitable outcome. And, you know, the only debate they've been having, like I said, is how many more people do we sacrifice before the inevitable? Or do we actually just stay in Afghanistan fighting for the rest of our lives? Mike, you were a soldier in the invasion in Iraq in 2003, March 19th. And I want to talk about that, what you did, and also how it led to your own radicalization, your political metamorphosis, why you had joined the military, etc. I want to talk about that. I want to also talk about the comparison between the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. But before we do that, let's talk about President Obama and his decisions. When he came into office in 2009, and the Democrats had control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, and Obama was very popular, he promised to end the war in Iraq. And he said it was a dumb war. But the war in Afghanistan presumably was not dumb. And so I think partly as a political cover for his decision to leave or to bring U.S. troops out of Iraq, he decided to double down in Afghanistan, and he sent, I believe, another 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan in 2009, but also announced that they were going to come back within two years, <laughs> which from a military point of view made no sense, because if you're trying to intimidate the enemy by sending tens of thousands more troops, but you're also announcing 
oh, but wait, we're going to bring them back in two years. It doesn't really have the same intimidating impact. The enemy can, quote, just wait them out. The right wing attacked Obama a lot for that. They said he was just pretending. He was playing. But, you know, for the soldiers who were sent, it's not playing. It's not pretending. It's not gaming. It's not a political maneuver. They're actually there on the ground. And some of them get killed and some of them get wounded. Some of them have, of course, physical injuries, but many also have psychological injuries. Again, you were in the military. When you think about the last 20 years and what you're saying, that this war has been lost a long time ago, it was just a matter of time before someone took the responsibility for ending it. But during the whole time, human beings, Afghans, Afghan civilians, Afghan soldiers, Afghan opposition fighters, but also young people who were in the U.S. military were sent into combat by people who knew that it was hopeless. Anyway, let's talk about that. Yeah, you know, I think prior to Obama's troop surge, I think there was a lot of belief inside the military brass, the Pentagon leadership, that the only reason that we were losing in Afghanistan, which the U.S. had been since, you know, just a couple years after dispersing the Taliban and in the invasion and a couple months after 9-11, they thought the only thing holding them back from winning was that they didn't have the troops that they needed. They didn't try to really overwhelm the Taliban and all of their strongholds and all of that. And so Obama's plan to scale down in Iraq so that we could scale up in Afghanistan. You know, and I remember this because so many of my friends were in this situation of just Iraq had gotten really, really bad. And then it was, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire to leave Iraq and go to Afghanistan, a war that was that was heating up. There was a belief in the political and military establishment that if we just really overwhelm the Taliban, really unleash a lot of bombs and a lot of soldiers, then we can drive them out of these areas, train an Afghan military and they can take control of the areas and we can leave. And Obama, when he promised that we would end the war two years after the troop surge, I think that was a real honest calculation by these, you know, West Point generals thinking this is all we just need two years to kill a lot of people and put our proxies in our place. And then we can go and we can declare victory. But the troop surge itself showed that there was no possibility to defeat the Taliban militarily. I mean, I think that, of course, this is true with the Iraq war. Now that history has been written about the U.S. occupation of Iraq, there's a real erasure of how badly the U.S. was really defeated on the ground. In Afghanistan, in all of the areas where the troop surge occurred, I mean, talking about Helmand, all of these countryside, I mean, yes, there were U.S. forces there, but they could not operate without coming under constant and intense attack. I mean, life for a soldier in Afghanistan during this phase and the years after would be you'd be stuck on a little tiny outpost in the middle of nowhere. During the day, your job would be just to go patrol through farmland for no reason, then generals could point at a map and say, look, we have soldiers here. We're doing good in the war. And every patrol, you would come under attack from people that you couldn't even see, whether it was from an IED blowing someone's legs off and the you know signature wound of the war became triple amputees. Or you would just be shot at from people you know, a thousand meters away that you couldn't see and you would just be pinned down all day. And, you know, I have a friend that was there at that time who said that, you know, they were running out of ammo every day. I mean, these are how long and intense these firefights were. And then at night, you'd go back to your little outpost. And then at night, you would just be assaulted by, you know, I mean, we're talking about sometimes you'd have, you know, something like 500 Taliban fighters assaulting a U.S. position. I mean, these aren't 
small battles. I mean, this is real force-on-force fighting. And the only reason that the Taliban did not completely overrun all these U.S. positions throughout the entire country is because all the soldiers on the ground, their job was to stay alive and hold the Taliban back long enough for air support to come in. So once one of these big attacks started, they would just have to say, okay, we just need to hold them off for 30 minutes until the Apache helicopters or the B-52 bombers or the A-10s or the jets have time to come in and just level all the ground around us where all these people are. So that was the reality throughout. I mean, and you look at places like Winnat Valley, Korangal Valley, places that are very remote. Where In Korangal Valley, something like 130 U.S. soldiers died just defending this one tiny little valley. I mean, and that's a high fatality number for like literally one point on a map. And that really became emblematic of the whole war because, you know, the U.S. spent a couple years trying to control this very important strategic valley. And then after 130 something U.S. troops die there, the generals say, you know what, this valley actually isn't that important and we're just going to leave. So that really defined the Afghanistan war through that period. And then when the U.S. recognized, okay, we can't succeed doing this, we need to pull back and just train Afghan proxy forces to do it. Then the top killer of U.S. troops became Afghan soldiers in training just killing their trainers. You know, Taliban joining the Afghan military undercover, waiting till they were being trained, and then just shooting the people that were training them. So at every turn, no matter what the U.S. did, they would just be completely defeated tactically. And like I said, the only thing saving them from just a complete defeat was the fact that the U.S. has this massive air power that's able to come in and just kill a lot of people. And so that actually echoes into today when we're looking at these areas that are being completely taken over by the Taliban. Just a couple days ago, the Biden administration had B-52 bombers, which are fairly large aircraft, I mean, and drop massive payloads. They had them attack an area in Helmand province to prevent the Taliban from taking control of a certain area. They bombed medical clinics. They bombed a high school. They killed about 20 civilians, including women and children, in this massive airstrike. Well, what was the purpose of that airstrike? I mean, Helmand province is Taliban country. I mean, there's no way that you're going to prevent the Taliban from taking over Helmand. You know, it's emblematic of the whole war. It's just to delay the Taliban taking over Helmand. I mean, I think when Biden has his 9-11 anniversary celebration or when he announces the great you know, victory of ending the Afghanistan war, it will look better if uh, the Taliban only controls 65% of Afghanistan than, you know, 90 or 100% of Afghanistan. And so these kind of just aerial assaults to just delay the inevitable and killing a lot of civilians in the process, I think speaks to the U.S. strategy in the country. But, you know, back to this idea of what it was, you know, obviously you could see what that was like for Afghans. I mean, of course, the press now is very much concerned with, oh, what's going to happen to the Afghan people when the Taliban take over? Yet they spent 20 years having no concern for what's going to happen to the Afghan people under American occupation. And the U.S. airstrikes are the number one killer of civilians in Afghanistan. And U.S. forces and U.S. backed forces kill a massive number of civilians as well. So there is no concern for those civilians throughout the duration of the war. It's only what will happen to the civilians under the Taliban. And so I think that for soldiers who were, you know, went through that that experience, I mean, you know, there was a lot of discontent. I mean, through the troop surge and afterwards, because it was obvious 
to people on the ground that we are just a dot on a map. There is no purpose for us being here other than for Washington and the Pentagon to say, look, we're doing a good job. We're making progress and a complete concealment of what the reality was on the ground, which was a real military defeat. So the U.S. is defeated in Afghanistan. Matthew Ho, our friend, who's an anti-war activist and formerly a State Department official and who had been in Afghanistan a long time, he resigned during the troop surge, Obama's troop surge, because he said, it's completely useless. The U.S. military occupation itself is the catalyst for the armed struggle or a great part of it that's going on in Afghanistan. That was back then. Now, he also made the point that it wasn't just the Taliban who were fighting the U.S., that there were actually hundreds of small or sometimes not so small armed organizations of Afghans who were in military combat against the U.S. and against NATO forces precisely because they didn't want their country occupied. And he said, by expanding the U.S. presence, the U.S. will expand the war because the U.S. presence itself is the trigger for the war. Now, the Baltimore Sun wrote an article on March 2nd, 2010, and the headline was, In Afghanistan, U.S. is fighting tribal insurgency, not jihad. Now, by tribal insurgency, they mean Afghans who are opposed to the puppet government that the U.S. established or who were opposing the military forces that had occupied their country, meaning the U.S. and NATO. Now, the Taliban, when you think about that, when you think about the fact that the U.S. has been at war in Afghanistan and against Afghan people for 20 years, and tens of thousands of people in Afghanistan have died, and so many villages have been destroyed, and just the stress and the pressure of having lived under constant warfare for a whole generation, or actually almost two generations now. And you think about, why is the U.S. there? What was going on? If they're not fighting jihad, meaning part of the Al-Qaeda's war that included the attacks on the World Trade Center on September 11th and the Pentagon on September 11th, you know, what is it? And the fact of the matter is, and people may not know this, is that when September 11th attacks did happen, the Taliban actually denounced the attack on the World Trade Center. And it said it was prepared to work with the United States to get to the bottom of it. The United States was asserting that Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda was responsible for the attack. And the Taliban had earlier given Osama bin Laden you know, guest status in Afghanistan. But the Taliban said, look, one, we denounced the attack, and two, we are prepared to hand over Osama bin Laden if the United States provides evidence and if his trial can take place in a Muslim country. So the U.S. said to that, no, we don't negotiate with terrorists, meaning the Taliban were the terrorists. Now, the Taliban are a reactionary political formation, and it was a reactionary government. But they weren't involved in big out-of-country attacks on the United States. That wasn't their agenda at all. So again, for people who might just have grown up with the Afghan war, which would be anybody who's you know 25 years or younger or 30 years or younger in the United States, what caused the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan? And 
how do you think it factored into the larger geostrategic calculations of the Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Colin Powell team back in 2001? You know, it's funny that I think people have the image of, you know, when they hear that Taliban statement, I think they imagine maybe, you know, people in just the middle of nowhere, a ragtag force like issuing that statement. When in reality, the Taliban, if you look back at press conferences prior to the U.S. invasion, you know, the Taliban had spokespeople that were in you know other countries that would be giving press conferences in English. And they'd be saying, like, look, the U.S. is giving us no options. Like a couple months ago, they considered us freedom fighters in Afghanistan and they used to support us in Afghanistan. And then now all of a sudden we're terrorists and they're not open to any negotiations. And so it was obvious that the Taliban was even in a PR sense trying to say, hey, we don't want a war. We don't want to fight you here. We can cooperate. But the United States was completely unwilling to budge on this quick turnaround. You know, the U.S. was initially fine with the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. Of course, that whole situation was created by U.S. policy, which, of course, you've talked about on your show before. But when the Taliban took power, the U.S. government really quickly moved to start courting the Taliban and to try to work out, you know, oil pipelines. Of course, the UNICAL pipeline was a big goal for big oil and the U.S. government. You know, you had large numbers of Taliban officials who were brought to the United States in the 90s. I'm not talking when they, you know, Mujahideen going and visiting Reagan at the White House. I mean, much more recently than that, to the homes of oil executives in Texas to talk about oil deals and so forth. And so the U.S. was very willing, knowing the political nature of the Taliban and, of course, the the crimes that they decry now of, you know, strict punishment for not observing Islamic law and so forth. They knew all that, but they were totally fine with it. So long as the Taliban would sign these deals for mineral extraction and oil pipelines with the U.S. government. But the Taliban was not super concerned with all of that. I mean, they were kind of resistant to just opening up to that kind of development and so forth. And so it became kind of an annoyance for the U.S. government, even though they were still you know, fine with some level of, of negotiating and trying. But it was impeding the super profits that they wanted to be making in Afghanistan. So then when 9-11 happened, as you mentioned, the Taliban were like, hey, we'll cooperate with you now. You know, We don't want anything to do with this. The calculation of the Bush administration was, Well, that may be true, but it's been hard for us to deal with the Taliban government. We would rather have just a totally puppet proxy government there. So let's just uh, do this really easy task of just taking out the Taliban and putting in a puppet government. Then we'll move into Iraq and take out the Iraqi government and put it in a puppet government. Then we'll move over to Syria and Iran and Lebanon and do it in those places as well. And so that was a calculation that the Taliban wasn't totally opposed to the United States, but just because they were a bit of an annoyance, not fully under the control and within the orbit of the U.S., they thought, we'll just use violence to take them down and then do it in a bunch of other countries as well. What a great, great opportunity. So it really was this extreme arrogance, this extreme hubris that really the military establishment thought that this would be easy. And, you know, if you think back, I mean, there really wasn't a major war in U.S. memory since the Vietnam War, which, of course, the U.S. was defeated. And all of the little military adventures in between then were just very one-sided, total U.S. domination, very short things. And so you had this military establishment in Washington thinking, you know what, we've come a long way technologically from Vietnam and strategically, and now we can win wars like we haven't been able to in the past because we have such an advantage technologically. And as we saw in Afghanistan and Iraq, that was a complete total miscalculation. And 
I think it was a real shock to the Pentagon and to Washington that they very quickly found themselves losing very badly both of those wars, despite having all of the most expensive and advanced military equipment. One of my first guests in the old radio show, Loud and Clear, was Lawrence Wilkerson, who was Colin Powell's chief of staff during the first four years of the George W. Bush administration and during the time that the U.S. invades Afghanistan. And I asked him, why did you all decide to invade Iraq? I said, you knew, because even I knew, and I wasn't in the government, I didn't have intelligence, but I had followed Iraq closely for the decade before, more than a decade. And I knew pretty much everything about the weapons inspection regime and the U.S. weapons inspectors had carried out 13,000 inspections in Iraq. And many of them were like on the spot inspections so that, you know, the country was completely inspected and they knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction there. I said, everybody knew that, everybody who was paying attention. And my question to him was, so why did you invade Iraq? And he said, well, because it was low hanging fruit, meaning it would be easy. It would be easy to attack and take over Iraq because it had been so hobbled by 13 years of sanctions. It was so weakened militarily. It had disarmed itself under the pretext of UN weapons inspections. So then I said, well, why did you invade Afghanistan? Because the Taliban were willing to turn over Osama bin Laden. And you know, I'm looking at old headlines now, Mike. You know, Bush rejects Taliban bin Laden offer. That was the Washington Post. Bush rejects Taliban offer to surrender bin Laden. That was the Independent in Britain. CNN, U.S. rejects Taliban offer to try bin Laden, et cetera, et cetera. It just goes on. Everything that we're saying, if anybody does any bit of research, you can see the Taliban were willing to cooperate. And what Wilkerson then went on to basically say is that because Osama bin Laden was in Afghanistan, the U.S. kind of had to check that box before it could move on to do the other invasions, which were in countries that the U.S. considered to be more important, like Iraq had been a principal ally of the Soviet Union. It had the second largest oil resources in the Middle East. It was even with Saddam Hussein's, you know, basically pro-West orientation that Ba'athist government was still like the Syrian government or the Libyan government, part of the anti-colonial project after World War II when those countries became independent. And so what he was basically saying is we had to invade Afghanistan and get it over with so we could go on to the real prize, which were these other countries, Iraq, Iran, Syria, etc. Now, when you think about that and you think about the cynicism of U.S. decision-making, the U.S. had to check a box because Osama bin Laden had been in Afghanistan, and they couldn't really invade Iraq without having done that first. You can kind of see the logic of that, and yet at the same time, as soon as they dispersed the government, which took place like within a week, the Taliban were dispersed within a week, they actually stopped pursuing them. They killed a lot of people. They suffocated a lot of people. There were terrible, terrible war crimes. But they even let Osama bin Laden escape. Again, it's hard for people who weren't adults in 2001 to understand the political atmosphere that existed after the 9-11 attacks that would allow this kind of obviously 
imperialist, cynical, and obviously false foreign policy to be implemented. Yeah, I mean, the 9-11 attacks really had, of course, this very profound impact on people. I think even while there is a huge amount of discontent around the Iraq war, because that was very blatantly, why are we doing this? What is the point of this? And of course, as soon as things took a bad turn in Iraq, then you had, especially within the military, a huge amount of opposition to the war. Because it was one thing when it was, oh, this is going to be quick and easy, we'll get out. But then once the bodies start piling up, then it becomes, okay, this is a disaster. What are we doing here? So even within, I mean, just an example of how actually controversial it was to oppose the Afghanistan war, because that was, as Obama said, that was the smart war. This is retaliation for 9-11, and we have to prevent another terrorist attack. Even within sectors of the anti-war movement. I mean, I remember as a, a member of Iraq Veterans Against the War, which was a large organization of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, it was controversial to bring in the Afghanistan war to that. I mean, I'm even talking about in 2008, 2009, I mean, discussions about whether to change, should we be Iraq and Afghanistan veterans against the war? That was defeated as a policy change for the organization. I mean, it took a long time to even get a resolution to oppose the Afghanistan war. And that's because it was even among members who were very opposed to the Iraq war, the decision was made, we will lose so many members if we also come out against the Afghanistan war. And so even within, I mean, it was, it just shows how there was this very big disconnect and ignorance about what the Afghanistan war was about in those early stages. But, you know, if we kind of fast forward to now, what we talked about in the past, like in the 90s and prior to the invasion, the U.S. strategy was to just try to court the Taliban and have some kind of deal and cooperation with the Taliban. Now, after 20 years of fighting, the U.S. has essentially gone back to that strategy saying, well, we're going to leave the Afghan government's on their own to try to fight for themselves. If the Taliban takes over, we are totally accepting that that's probably what's going to happen. And we're just going to pursue a policy of trying to negotiate with the Taliban and have some kind of cooperation with the Taliban. Well, of course, we're going to airstrike them all the time when they don't do what we want or we feel that we need to exert some pressure. But the fact that 20 years of constant war has now come back to the original strategy that the U.S. had prior to the invasion just shows the level of defeat. And, you know, you mentioned Iraq and the idea that also, you know, they thought this was going to be easy too. we'd do this quick, easy thing in Afghanistan. Now we're going to do this quick, easy thing in Iraq. When I was talking about how badly the U.S. was defeated in Afghanistan, where, you know, I remember reading articles from commanders saying, oh, we're making a lot of progress. Now we can walk 100 meters outside of our base without getting shot at. When previously, as soon as you poke your head above the wall, you have bullets flying at you. Now we have made so much progress that we can walk 100 meters before we start getting shot at. Iraq was pretty much the same, although there was much higher casualties because it was densely populated and, and much easier to kill American troops, where you had whole areas where you'd have things called black routes. And what a black route was, was a road that the U.S. would have to patrol, and it would be labeled a black route if there was a 100% chance that you were going to get attacked going on that route. So think about that. You had entire areas, entire neighborhoods, entire cities in Iraq, where if you were a soldier and you're like, okay, we're going to go on patrol on this route, there was a 100% chance that you were going to come under a very major and intense attack. So of course, that's a lost war. That means you've lost. And the only way that the US got out of that, even though they tried to get out of that by just going into these areas and just 
blowing everything up and killing as many people as possible. The solution for the US was just to start paying the militia forces to not attack them so they could have a withdrawal that made it seem like they didn't lose the war. And so then you'd have areas where the US would go patrol and they'd all get killed and they'd come over heavy attack. Then the situation changed where they just paid the militia to not attack. So then the US would patrol that area and say, oh, look, this used to be a black route. This used to be an area we couldn't go. And now we can go and patrol freely. We've we've succeeded. We've won the war. And that just speaks to the deception that the US and the media use. And I think there's no better example than that than the Afghanistan papers, where it showed that throughout most of the Afghanistan war, the generals were reporting to the White House under Obama in particular, saying, by every metric, we are losing the war. And the Obama administration came back and said, well, create a metric where we are winning the war. And hiding from the people of the United States and the world, the sheer level of which we were losing, but they knew all along. Right. And so here you have a situation where, like in Iraq, let's just spin this out for people, especially people who were, weren't available to be following the events. Perhaps they weren't sort of paying attention politically. Perhaps they were too young. But in 2007, when the surge happens in Iraq, and again, the U.S. was obviously losing the war, even though the calculations of George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, Rumsfeld, Colin Powell, was this was going to be a cakewalk because the U.S. military was so much bigger than Iraq's military. And Iraq was hobbled by sanctions. And Iraq was only 28 million people. It was going to be a cakewalk. And then, you know, after about a few months, the resistance begins to grow and grow and grow. And American soldiers become less and less able to travel anywhere. And the dissatisfaction with occupation grows. And when nonviolent protests take place, people are shot at by the occupation troops. So then the nonviolent civil disobedience road sort of closes and the armed struggle grows. So then the U.S. says, "Okay, we're going to send 100,000 more troops. I met you because you and I were both part of an answer coalition led protest on September 15, 2007 at the Capitol building against the surge, which was on the table before the Congress at that time. So the U.S. sends 100,000 more troops. Of course, Congress goes along, goes along, even though the Democrats, I think, by then had control of the House again. They go along and the U.S. sends 100,000 troops. And then after a little while, Bush and then Obama after him says, look, the surge worked. The conflict level is lower. The black routes that you mentioned, you know, we can travel them now. But the real reason wasn't because the 100,000 troops defeated the armed forces. It's because they literally put them on the payroll. So that's what you're alluding to. But the awakening councils, the Iraqi awakening councils in what was called the rest of Sunni areas in you know west of Baghdad, those people, literally tens of thousands of fighters were given a $300 a month stipend or something like that. And their tribe or their area would distribute the money. And the purpose of that money was just to get them not to shoot. And then the U.S. could say, see, we won. And then the U.S. starts to retreat from Afghanistan over time, starts to you know bring troops out and says, everything's under control. And then you have this political vacuum created by the U.S. imperialist Pentagon invasion of the country. And who starts to fill the void, the political void? ISIS. And so we have the rise of ISIS in 
Iraq, and then in Syria, and then ISIS attacks Mosul, the third biggest city of Iraq in the northern part of the country, a city that was Arab and Kurdish and Christian and Muslim, and a real tapestry, a very diverse part of Iraq. These right-wing ISIS, super Islamicist forces coming from those same areas where this void has been created by the destruction of the Iraqi state. They start to take territory and even threaten to take Baghdad. And then the U.S. has to come back into Iraq. So when you look at the whole thing over the last five presidents, every element of military calculation, every calculation, every decision, major decision was false. It was wrong. And yet none of them, none of them were held accountable. They're off writing books making speeches for a lot of money. But you have all of these U.S. soldiers and veterans, I don't even know the numbers, you will know, who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. And for many of them, their lives have been shattered, or even if they're partly restored, they were certainly traumatic events, life-changing events. And now the U.S. says, oh, we're going to leave Afghanistan. We can't keep fighting. Biden says, you know, the Afghans have to fight themselves. As a matter of fact, I have an audio clip from earlier this week, Mike. I want to play this. It's real short. It's Joe Biden explaining the decision about leaving Afghanistan. And I want the audience to hear it. And then I want you, again, to help us understand, understand all of this from the filter of those who actually were sent to fight and die, to shoot and be shot at in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Let's listen to Joe Biden. Afghan leaders have to come together. We lost thousands, lost death and injury, thousands of American personnel. They've got to fight for themselves, fight for their nation. The United States, I'll insist we continue to keep the commitments we made of providing close air support, making sure that their Air Force functions and is operable, resupplying their forces with food and equipment and paying all their salaries. But they've got to want to fight. They have outnumbered the Taliban, and I'm getting daily briefings. I think there is still a possibility to have a, a significant new Secretary of Defense, our equivalent of Secretary of Defense in Afghanistan, Bushmoa Khan, who's a serious fighter. I think they're beginning to realize they've got to come together politically at the top. And, uh, but we're going to continue to keep our commitment. But I do not regret my decision. Mike Preisner, go ahead. Well, it's funny because Biden really changed his tune. And I think this is an example of how the Pentagon and the Pentagon establishment really wields an immense amount of control over our elected government, which I think kind of gives a window into the democracy that we have. But, you know, when Biden was campaigning, he was not supporting the end of the Afghanistan war and was vocal against Trump's deal with the Taliban that allowed for the withdrawal of U.S. troops. You know, in one major interview Biden gave very close to the election, he said that he wants several thousand U.S. troops to be in Afghanistan because we cannot abandon the Afghan government. We cannot abandon the Afghan military. It's too much of a responsibility. We can't do it. And then he comes in, gets his Pentagon briefing, and then says, actually, we have to leave and they have to take control themselves. So that was a big flip by Biden. 
But it's also important what he said the U.S. role is going to continue to be. I think that there's been a lot of response to the U.S. withdrawal, similarly with the withdrawal in Iraq, saying, you know, this is all fake. They're pretending to end the war, but they're really not. They're going to stay engaged. There's going to be mercenaries, whatever. You know, there's, of course, a degree of truth to that, which I'll get into in a moment. But the U.S. really was driven out and felt that they needed to completely break off the engagement because it was very bad for them and it was only going to get worse or just be a constant stalemate, which is not good for the U.S. empire to be locked in a lost war for decades in Iraq and in Afghanistan. So Biden you know, kind of laid out what the strategy is going to be, which is just provide air cover for the Afghan military, which it is funding and arming and probably no longer training on the ground, but has provided an incredible amount of training for. And so the fact that the Afghan army outnumbers the Taliban, you know, which is true, it's possible that the Afghan army will basically just lock down Kabul and prevent the Taliban from coming in and fully taking over the government. So you'll have this Afghan government that's holed up in Kabul with hundreds of thousands of troops defending it, and then the Taliban controlling the rest of the country. And then you will have United States B-52 bombers and other large aircraft and missiles fired from the sea just kind of continuing to rain down the destruction that they have for the past 20 years to prevent, you know, this full Taliban takeover. But it's interesting to see how quickly the U.S. can stop caring about something, whereas the entire argument for continuing the war for 20 years, especially the phases where it became very bad, not only large numbers of Afghan civilians were being killed, which, you know, skyrocketed under Trump, but just a huge number of Americans who were predominantly becoming amputees. I mean, you know, probably 10 times the number of soldiers killed, you know, lost arms and legs and things like that. But, you know, the entire time they've just been told, well, we can't leave because we have such a responsibility to Afghanistan. We have such responsibility to the Afghan government. We can't let the Afghan people live under Taliban rule. And it was all just like pulling at your heartstrings. And and I remember Obama's speech where he was announcing the escalation of the war. I was watching it with families of, of people who had loved ones in Afghanistan or in the military. And it was just this, we just can't abandon them. It just goes against our morals and everything. And that was the rationale for the entire, you know, last 10 or 15 years. But then on a dime, they can say, actually, you know what? None of that matters. Just like being in Corngall Valley, it's so important. You have to defend this. Everything rests on this. And then saying, you know what? It doesn't matter. And so I think that's a good lesson, especially for people in the military, is that no matter what you're being told and how important it is and how dire it is and how important it is to American national security and, and all of that, it's really just a bunch of BS and just to kind of fit the narrative that the military and political establishment need. And they will just turn on a dime and completely change. And all the things that they cared so deeply about, they'll just say, actually, you know what? None of that matters because we're pivoting elsewhere to another theater of war. It's so important for people to remember that, Mike. And also for people who join the military because they're young, maybe recruiters told them how wonderful it was going to be. Perhaps they couldn't afford college. They couldn't get a decent paying job. Whatever reason people have when they're 17, 18, 19 years old, where they're being recruited into the military, and there's so much propaganda. And of course, the military targets the working class and the poor to enter the ranks. Now, the lesson about the cynicism of the commanding staff, the officers, and the politicians, it's so critically important because. As leftists, as socialists, as anti-imperialists, we have to also 
be able to reach the working class in the United States with an anti-war and anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist message. And that includes those workers who have been you know, brought into the military, meaning that part of the working class, which is in uniform. And you know, when you were mentioning about what happened for Iraq GIs or Afghan soldiers, I'm thinking back to what happened in Vietnam, which is my generation, and my friends who were in platoons and in infantry platoons who talked about how they were used in exactly the same way as the people in the southern part of Afghanistan were used. They were in a valley or on a hill. And the real goal was to draw fire almost so that you would then know the coordinates. You could then radio in the coordinates to the Air Force, to the U.S. Air Force, which would then come and use B-52 bombers or napalm or Agent Orange or whatever to attack the soldiers who were attacking you. So you were, in essence, bait. You're like the worm on the end of the hook and you hope the fish comes and then you know, the high command can send in the big guns, the air power. Meanwhile, what happens to you? Do you get your leg blown off or legs or arm or do you get killed or lose an eye? That doesn't matter because you've drawn fire and you can radio in the coordinates. Exactly what happened in Vietnam. That's exactly the function of the platoon. Go out in the field, have the so-called Viet Cong, the National Liberation Fighters, shoot at you so that you can radio in coordinates. If you get back from the mission, great. If you don't, nobody gives a damn. That's the way the soldier is treated. That's the way the soldier is viewed. The soldier is viewed by the brass and by the government, by the bourgeoisie, just the way the workers in a factory or a mine are. They're using them in order to make profit or to achieve an objective, and they don't care about you. The reason I'm mentioning Vietnam is that today, Mike, Vietnam, I think the fifth largest trading partner for Vietnam is the United States. If you look at your shoes or your pants or your shirts, a lot of them come from Vietnam. The U.S. was perfectly happy at a certain point to pivot and make Vietnam a friend because of a confrontation that the U.S. is having with China, you know, you trying to hope to enlist Vietnam. I think they'll be unsuccessful. But meanwhile, the soldier, the Marine, the sailor, you're dead or you have post-traumatic stress. Or, you know, you've lost so much in your life. You're just completely a puppet. And when you think back about the tradition of socialists, like Eugene Debs, who went to prison for 10 years at the age of 66 because he gave a speech against U.S. entrance into World War I, and he said to the workers, don't fight your fellow workers abroad. The only war I'll fight is a class war against our real enemy who's not abroad. Our real enemy is at home. Our real enemy is on Wall Street or in the corporate boardrooms. But this approach and this idea of trying to reach the soldier, the sailor, the Marine, a worker who is both victimizing people when they're sent abroad, but also a victim of the ruling class, it's a key element for our tactical understanding of how to not only end this or that war, but to end a system that breeds endless war. That's right. And, you know, you mentioned that to the generals, you know, the bosses of the military, that soldiers are really just like just like a worker in a factory that they don't care about. It's actually worse than that. I think people in the popular lexicon know that soldiers are referred to as GIs. You know, we have G.I. Joe. It's a phrase people know that G.I. is a soldier. But when you join the army, you're told that G.I. stands for government issue. 
meaning that you are a government-issued person. You're no different than your government-issued canteen, your government-issued helmet, your government-issued uniform. You are just a piece of equipment, and you actually have no meaning at all. I mean, that's immediately in basic training what you're told, why you are a GI. You are no longer an individual. You are a piece of government equipment, no more meaningful than a canteen that gets lost on the battlefield. And that's how you're treated by the command. And I think that soldiers realize that very quickly. And in my experience, you know, I joined the army two months before the 9-11 attacks in 2001. So uh, I was in with a generation which did not expect to go to war at all. I mean, everyone joining, it was 100%. This is a means to an end. I'll do four years. I'll get some job training. I'll get some college money. I'll get out and I'll do something else. So when 9-11 hit and all of a sudden all these people who thought they were just going to you know, learn to be a mechanic and then get out and get a job as a mechanic were all of a sudden on patrols getting shot at, that led to a great amount of discontent within the ranks. And that became the basis of the organizing and Iraq veterans against the war and the, the many rebellions and resistance that happened within the military. But then at the same time, you had post 9-11, you had a generation of people joining who joined with the expectation of going to war or joining because they wanted to go to war. That, of course, fueled a lot of the discontent, as I mentioned earlier, around Iraq, because a lot of soldiers joined and said, hey, I joined to go to war in Afghanistan. I didn't join to go to war in Iraq. There was, of course, resistance around that issue, which, of course, complicated, but nevertheless, something that can be seized on as organizers. But I think the opportunity that presents itself now is now that the wars have wound down, now it's a new generation of young people joining, again, like mine was, that don't have the expectation of going to war, that are joining as a means to an end, and are susceptible to organizing against possible new wars. For example, when it looked like we were on the precipice of war with Iran. I mean, there was I was contacted by dozens of active duty people who were trying to find ways out of it, refusing to go, which was much more than I've ever experienced even during the height of the Afghanistan and Iraq war in terms of soldiers who are ready to resist. But even among those, we're not just talking about draftees in Vietnam who became resistors, who never intended to go to war, or people like in my generation who joined not thinking they'd ever go to war and then were all of a sudden thrown into something that made no sense where there was a lot of people dying. But even among people who joined specifically to, I want to go to war to go get revenge for 9-11, and I want to go to Afghanistan, I want to go to Iraq. Even among those most die-hard patriots or whatever you want to call them, a large number of those people became militant, anti-war fighters, people who very quickly took the side of the Iraqi and the Afghan people, realized they'd be doing the same thing in their shoes. And so I think if you look at throughout the entire duration of history, I mean, from the early first colonial wars by the United States in the 1800s up through the Afghanistan and Iraq war, all of those wars have a rich history of some sector of the military deciding that they were on the wrong side and becoming part of rebellion and resistance against the war. And so knowing that fact, that no matter what war it is, there's going to be some sector of the military that turns against it. And either that can be fostered and organized and grown into something bigger, or it can just be ignored. I think that anyone who's a socialist would see that as a great opportunity, and not just a great opportunity, but one of those opportunities that's a prerequisite for something like a revolution. Marx and Engels and their generation worked for revolution. They wrote about revolution. They talked about revolution. They created a foundational understanding of socialism and scientific socialism. But with the exception of the Paris Commune, which was very short-lived, they didn't see a successful revolution. 
and it was left to the next generation. In World War One, again, think about this, everybody. It was in World War One that gave rise to revolution in Russia and in Germany and in Hungary. The war ended really because of the anti-war resistance of the people and the fact that the workers and farmers who were in the military basically rose up. That's how the Russian Revolution happened. And the workers formed their council. They were called Soviets, and the peasants had their council, and they were called peasant Soviets, and the soldiers had their council, and they were the soldiers. So it was the worker, peasant, soldiers, Soviets and that inspired their sisters and brothers, mainly men in that case in Germany, who ended Germany's participation when socialist agitation reached the soldiers and they rose up in 1918. And so you had a revolution in Russia, a revolution that was ultimately defeated in Germany. That war gave rise to revolution. And then 20 years later, there was another war, World War II. And at the end of World War II, revolution broke out against the existing capitalist systems and ruling classes that had made that war inevitable. So you had a revolution in North Korea. It would have been North and South Korea, except for U.S. occupation of South Korea. In Korea, a revolution in China, a revolution in Vietnam. The government in Yugoslavia was a revolutionary government under Tito as a result of their almost single-handed defeat of the Nazis who were occupying Yugoslavia. Then there were socialist governments in Eastern Europe. They were largely created as a consequence of the Red Army, the Soviet Red Army, liberating those countries from fascism at the beginning of the Cold War. But my point is that capitalist imperialist war actually so violently disturbs the existing status quo that revolutionary opportunity or revolutionary momentum happens as a consequence of the sheer destructiveness of the war. And then those parts of the working class that are given arms, given arms training, given military training, but who become revolutionary, who be, are able to connect with revolutionary or working class or socialist organizations, they become a major factor, not only in ending the war, but also in the ensuing revolution. And Actually, the socialist movement that reorganized at the end of World War One, that reorganized under the banner of the Third International or the Communist International, that part of the socialist movement that was defending the Soviet Revolution or the Russian Revolution, they codified new rules for membership. So as socialists went from the Second International to join the Third International and parties in Italy and France and Spain and Everywhere, there was these debates going on within the socialist movement. Are we going to affiliate with the Second International, the Social Democratic Revolution uh, International, or the Third International, meaning the communist-led or Bolshevik-led international? One of the conditions for membership in the Third International was that you, the working class party that wanted to affiliate, had to pledge that you were going to do agitation among rank-and-file soldiers precisely because they were so critically important to any revolutionary prospect. Yeah, and I think that's been 
misunderstood a bit today. I mean, of course, now that's kind of been the, the socialist tradition. I mean, since then, you know, through Vietnam, through, of course, the, you know, socialist orientations through the Iraq and Afghanistan war. Now that there's a kind of counter narrative that I think just lives online, that anyone who joins the military is a class traitor and is irredeemable, should be treated as such and so forth. You know, when there's historical examples, like you just mentioned about how you actually could not be part of the Communist International unless you were doing work organizing inside the military. I think that's been misunderstood to think, oh, well, they're just talking about conscripts or draftees or workers and peasants who didn't want to be in the military but were forced by a fascist state to join the military. That's not actually historically accurate. It's referring to people who joined, professional soldiers, and so forth. And that, you know, that's reflected, I think, in the organizing of the Vietnam War. Yes, there were a large amount of draftees that made up the backbone of the GI resistance, but a lot of the leadership and people who became socialists and leaders in socialist organizations and leaders against imperialism were not the draftees, were the true believers, as you call them, who joined, who were highly decorated, who got bronze stars and purple hearts and were the quintessential like golden soldier. They ended up constituting a large part of the leadership of the GI resistance movement in Vietnam. I think that the lesson of World War I, as you mentioned, and the understanding of Lenin and other revolutionary leaders that this was an essential piece of organizing for socialism, that has been proven over and over again throughout history to be correct. Because whenever you have an imperialist war, the contradictions of the system are exposed the real life situation and conditions for soldiers, it just all the propaganda dissipates. And it doesn't matter how much propaganda you were fed or bought into or indoctrinated with prior to going to the war. Like I was, once you're there, all of it goes away and you can see everything clearly. And then a number of soldiers have the potential to become the opposite, to change, to switch sides. And I think that's been proven over and over again. And it's something that we should always be thinking about strategically uh, in our own organizing. Right. And if you use the civilian equivalent of it, you can see how important that is. I mean, Daniel Ellsberg was a, you know, a really senior person in the Pentagon. And then because he was moved and motivated by anti-war protesters and he, because he knew the truth about how, how the government was lying about the war, he released the Pentagon Papers and that stimulated more opposition. We have many, many other people who are like sort of inside the political establishment who start to break away from the establishment under pressure. Philip Agee, who wrote the book Inside the Company, he was part of the CIA in Latin America, and he was you know, recruiting people to be part of the CIA and to spy on the left. Philip Agee blew the whistle on the CIA. He defected to the side of peace. He had to move to Cuba for a while. But he revealed the CIA's crimes. John Stockwell, who was the CIA station chief in the capital of Angola, who revealed how the CIA was working with the apartheid government in South Africa to stop the Angolan revolution led by the MPLA. I mean, these were invaluable allies who became part of the movement. They weren't simply allies. They were in many ways like comrades in the struggle. And this kind of moralizing, oh, we're going to denounce anyone who's in the U.S. military or who's ever joined or, you know, if you have that as the criteria, then, you know, the prospects for revolution are very, very low. If you assume everybody in society who has a reactionary position or doesn't have 
an awakened socialist position is not your potential comrade and ally, you're writing off most of society. Like the whole kind of moralizing by people on, especially people who are living online essentially and who don't really have any direct connection to the working class. It's not only a foolhardy position, it's a position that if adopted would mean that there was no prospect for revolution. Mike, I'll give you the final word on that, but I want to turn in our last couple of minutes back to Afghanistan as well. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it was something like 2 million people served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Of course, many millions more served in the military over the past 20 years. And, you know, if you cut yourself off from organizing soldiers and veterans, of course, that constitutes a much larger segment of the population, people who are not active duty. So not only do you cut yourself off from that as well, but also military families. And I think anyone, the working class existence in the United States the experience of poverty and the existence of people who live in poverty in the United States. Every single person, every single family that deals with poverty, that deals with economic insecurity, the military is in some way a part of their life. They have a family member in the military. It could be a close family member. It could be, you know, cousins or uncles and things like that. And so if you kind of try to write off this sector, you're not just writing off people in the active duty. You're not just writing off veterans, but you're putting a wall up between your politics and the future that you want to see, and everyone who might has a connection to someone who's been through this thing. And there's so much potential there, too. I mean, one of the biggest uprisings through the Afghanistan war was of families of soldiers who were there. That didn't mean that their loved one was against the war, but they were. I mean, and they saw what was happening. I mean, that's where you had the Camp Casey, Cindy Sheehan, whose son was killed in Iraq, camping out at the lawn of George W. Bush's ranch. I mean, that became a catalyst and a magnet for the anti-war movement to grow. And it was led by mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters of people who were in Iraq, in Afghanistan dying. And so there's so much potential there too. And if you really are serious about organizing with the working class, there has to be a level of sympathy and understanding for those whose loved ones have been in the military or are currently in the military, but an understanding that they have grievances also. Your life doesn't get good once you join the military. In fact, your life usually gets worse when you join the military. And so all the ways that we would organize workers around the difficulties of life under capitalism, that doesn't go away when they're in the military or when they have a loved one in the military. You deal with a whole other set of contradictions and problems and oppression as a poor person in the United States. And so that's, of course, something major to keep in mind as well as all the opportunities that present itself for the disgruntled family members of working class people in the military. There are, as of a few months ago, the latest survey, 19 million U.S. veterans. And when you include their families, you're talking about you know 60 to 80 million people in the United States. Mike, before we actually go back to Afghanistan to end up, I just want to ask you, because you were in the Answer Coalition with me and so many other people. We formed a task force of GIs and veterans because we wanted to organize an anti-war front within and amongst military people and amongst veterans. And then that became the organization March Forward. You were going to military bases, bringing the message of anti-war GIs or anti-war veterans, and also trying to help people because so many people were suffering after their engagement or deployment to Iraq or Afghanistan, and frequently multiple deployments. So people had so many problems. And 
you know, the U.S. government pretends to love the veterans and said, you know, Colin Kaepernick had to be condemned when he took a knee in the Star Spangled Banner because it was dishonoring veterans. But there's nothing more dishonoring and you sort of disregarding veterans except for how the U.S. veterans are actually treated, especially people who are having problems and having needs by U.S. society, by this bourgeois system and this bourgeois government. Let's just talk about that because obviously the number of suicides, the number of people suffering from depression, the number of homeless veterans, I mean, it's off the charts. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's just another example of the potential that there is for organizing among veterans because, you know, of course, there is a lot of organizing around not wanting to go get killed in Iraq or Afghanistan. But if you get out of a deployment, that's not the end of your problems. And one of the main things we organized around at that time wasn't even soldiers who were, you know, opposed to the war per se, but the main issue that they were having was just the complete abandonment for mental health issues, any kind of support for people who are coming back from the wars. And so you had this massive suicide epidemic that began around 2009 or became recognized around 2009, 2010, where like one active duty soldier a day was committing suicide, which the active duty military isn't that big. And so that's a pretty shocking amount of people. And there was just a practice among the military command of if anyone was seeking help for mental health issues, to punish them, to create a culture where you would be scared to come forward. If you did come forward, you were ridiculed, you were punished, you were disciplined, and then it wouldn't matter because you weren't going to get the help anyway, and you were just going to get forced on another deployment. So trying to get people into just kind of silencing themselves. And so that led to a kind of massive wave of suicides. We weren't just involved in organizing soldiers who were dealing with that situation, but family members of soldiers who had killed themselves in particular wives and mothers of soldiers who had fought you know, endlessly to get treatment, mental health treatment, and eventually succumb to the suicide. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the rates of homelessness, economic insecurity for people who get out of the military. I mean, the, right now, the fastest growing sector of homeless people is Black women veterans. I mean, that's the number one demographic that is experiencing homelessness at a rising rapid rate. Of course, that's a community that anyone who's interested in socialism needs to be organizing with. And I think just is another example of how you're, it's not just the conditions of imperialist war that can push people into the potential for becoming radicalized and becoming organized, but just the conditions that working class people deal with who find themselves in the military and then find their problems getting worse as a working class person through the experience of having been in the military. All right, Mike, let's go back. I want to thank you for that and also march forward in the work that you did and other anti-war soldiers and veterans and anti-war Marines and veterans. Really significant work. And, you know, I think it's part of the history of the last 20 years in the anti-war movement and more needs to be done to recognize it. But let's go back to Afghanistan. We played earlier a clip from Joe Biden, he said he has no regrets. The time has come. The Afghans have to learn how to, quote, fight for themselves. Very disgusting and gross, as if people in Afghanistan haven't been fighting. But let's go to another audio clip. And it's Ned Price. He's the State Department spokesperson. And he's talking about what's going on currently and what to expect as the U.S. actually finally leaves Afghanistan, meaning at least its equipment, its soldiers, its Marines, 
air power is coming out of Afghanistan, which doesn't mean that it won't be redeployed, especially with airstrikes. But I want to hear Ned Price from the State Department because his comments, I think, are very important and very interesting. And I want to get your assessment of them. Order for us and for our allies and partners uh, to be able to recognize any future government of Afghanistan and to provide assistance to it. Uh, it must emerge from a political settlement that meets five criteria. First, it must be inclusive. Second, it must respect the rights of all Afghans, including women and minorities. Third, it allows the Afghan people to have a say in choosing their leaders. Fourth, it must prevent Afghan soil from being used to threaten the United States uh, and its allies and partners. And fifth and finally, it must respect its commitments in terms of international law and international humanitarian law. So what Ned Price is doing there, Mike, is outlining at least the public relations version of what will be required by the new Afghan government, however it takes shape, in order to become recognized by the United States, meaning not only having diplomatic recognition, but to be integrated as Afghanistan was under the Taliban prior to September 11, 2001, into the world economy where Afghanistan could actually participate rather than be completely sanctioned or strangled, as the U.S. does to so many other countries. So again, the parts about that the government must be inclusive, the government must come about as a consequence of elections, I don't think the U.S. actually cares about any of that. I mean, certainly if you look at the U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia, for instance, there are no elections, it's not inclusive, it's orientation towards women completely reactionary. Anyway, what it seemed to me, what Ned Price is saying is the U.S. is prepared to have relations with the new government, whatever the new government looks like in Afghanistan. And what they're suggesting to the Taliban is that the Taliban would do better by entering into a negotiated settlement now even if they're the dominant part of a government of national unity, even if they control it, that it would have the fig leaf of inclusiveness. And right now, in the coming days, there are going to be regional negotiations where a number of countries from the area are coming together. And there's obviously going to be some sort of arrangement whereby the Taliban, who clearly are going to come in as the power in the government, find a way to make an arrangement with some of the nearby countries so that their proxy forces can be included in a government of national unity. Again, I just want to get your thoughts as we start to wrap up here. What do you think comes next for Afghanistan? Right. Well, it's it also interesting that a unity government with the Taliban has really been the goal of the U.S. since the troop surge. I mean, the reason Obama said we're going to do a troop surge and then leave in two years, that wasn't fully with the expectation that the Taliban would be totally defeated, but the U.S. will have exerted enough pressure and taken enough territory that the Taliban would agree to a power sharing deal. And so uh, a unity government with the Taliban or even a full Taliban government that's friendly with the United States is really what all the fighting and dying has been about, which, of course, they couldn't be honest with soldiers about. It was you're going to defeat the Taliban because they're so evil, we cannot allow them to be in power. When behind the scenes, they were saying, well, we have to go put enough pressure on the Taliban with violence that they will agree to just work with us and cooperate us and be in a unity government. But I think price is five points. I mean, that really is just 
the five criteria which the U.S. can use to justify continuing to bomb. And so just like we saw the B-52 attack in Helmand a couple days ago that killed 20 civilians, if the U.S. just says, oh, the Taliban isn't doing one of these five things, then we have the authorization to go in with more B-52 bombers and blow up a lot of civilians. And so I think that going back to that point about the end of the war is fake, the U.S. is still going to be engaged there, that's true, but the U.S. is leaving defeated and in a retreat, having accomplished really none of its goals in Afghanistan. Its goal of having a puppet government or a a government that is subservient to it, it sees as not viable. Its goal of having permanent U.S. military bases for with which it can threaten China and Iran, that is gone. The idea that they could have, you know, strip the country of its minerals and set up an infrastructure for mining, uh, that is gone. Oil pipeline goals are gone. So all of the goals that the U.S. went in with, they are leaving accepting that they have not accomplished these goals, just like with Iraq and the coal completely looting Iraq for its oil and all of that stuff. That wasn't accomplished. And so the U.S. has left both of these wars, even though they've stayed engaged in some way and will continue killing people by drone strike and bombers, they have still left in retreat, having failed at their main objectives. And I think that a lot of people see that and think, The empire is waning, it's collapsing, it's not succeeding anymore. But the U.S. is just going to move on to another area. Yes, they've accepted defeat in the Middle East and in Southeast Asia, but they're going to be moving on towards other things, the Asia pivot and so forth. And just like with Vietnam, I mean, the U.S. was handily defeated in Vietnam and was forced to retreat from Vietnam under very similar circumstances. But that didn't mean the empire was defeated and kept on a downward spiral. It then surged again in Latin America and in other parts of the world. And so for people concerned with imperialism and fighting imperialism, These are, of course, big defeats that can be exploited, but the U.S., it's just going to turn its sights somewhere else. And one of the reasons for the withdrawal in Iraq, the withdrawal in Afghanistan, is just precisely so it can set its sights on another region of the world. Right. For the empire to be defeated, it will be defeated at home. I mean, radical change where the U.S. has a government that's not premised on empire, not premised on imperialism. That can only happen when the people of the United States act together to create a new system. And I think it's really important, Mike, what you're saying in terms of where the U.S. will pivot. Again, I think there's kind of a cavalier usage of this idea or the language that the empire is crumbling, it's fading, it's now in the autumn of its life. When you look at what happened in Korea, the U.S. lost in Korea, meaning the U.S., tried to conquer North Korea and finally compelled the North Koreans under the threat of nuclear attack to sign a military pact that basically ended the conflict or the military side of the conflict. That was in July 1953. And then the U.S. lost in Vietnam, and we can see the U.S. has lost in Iraq and the U.S. lost in Afghanistan. But again, it's not going away. U.S. imperialism isn't like defeated in that sense. And right now, the U.S. is pivoting towards China. And I think it's very noteworthy that Chinese and Russian troops are right now, at this moment, at the moment that we're speaking, engaged in massive military exercises in northwest China. That's in Xinjiang, where you know the Uyghur part of the population is made up of Uyghur Muslims. This is obviously a sign of military cooperation, growing military cooperation between Russia and China. But Xinjiang shares a border with Afghanistan. And 
certainly the governments in China and the governments in Russia don't believe that the U.S. exit from Afghanistan makes the danger of war any less real. In fact, it makes it more pronounced from their point of view. When when Obama said, let's pivot to Asia in 2011, he represented that part of the American capitalist establishment that believed that the U.S., by being bogged down in endless wars that it could not win in either the Middle East or South Asia, was allowing China to sort of rise independently and peacefully. And the U.S. needed to use all of its power to contain and to constrain China. And I think that's what we're looking at. The only difference, perhaps, is that unlike Afghanistan, unlike Iraq, unlike Vietnam or Korea, a real confrontation with China is something that harkens back to World War II or World War I in terms of the dimension of the conflict. And that's why people who care about peace, people who are really determined to fight for peace, uh, determined to make a war against war, have to really focus on the sort of essence of the U.S. system, which when you look at American capitalism, you can't but come to the conclusion that it has an organic war drive and it's addicted to militarism. Mike Preisner, you get the last word. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think the level of catastrophe that a confrontation with China, which would include other regional powers, um, would just be, of course, devastating on a scale that we can't even imagine. And I think that the lesson there is that, you know, imperialism as a system, you know, which is not a policy choice, which is a, you know, the United States is driven just by its nature as an economy that has to continue expanding to conquer new markets and new parts of the world and impose its currency on other places, that it's an inevitable drive to war. And there's no other way to cut it. I mean, by its nature, it will force these confrontations to happen. And so, you know, for those of us who are interested in peace and really realize how important that is and maintaining that there is not a war with China or Russia or, or Iran, that at the core of it, we have to fight the system of capitalism, the system of imperialism, because as long as that still is intact, it creates this inevitable drive for conflict. And that may not even be intentional. I mean, I think the U.S. is scared of war with China. I mean, given how badly it lost against very low technological advancement armies in Iraq and Afghanistan, with much smaller armies in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, it knows that a war with China, with Iran, with Russia, or all three of them together and their other allies would be very devastating for the U.S. But, you know, wars aren't always a decision. Wars can be caused by just the continued belligerent escalation of the United States, which is constantly menacing these countries and provoking them in different oceans and things like that. I mean, a war could start just because of the recklessness of the Pentagon. And so it's our lives and the lives of millions of people are really in the hands of people that absolutely should not be trusted and have proven over and over again for the entire existence of our country to just be willing to throw away millions of lives for just the benefit of a small group of people. Mike, you and Abby Martin produced an important movie about Afghanistan. Real quick, if people want to find that movie, how do they do that? It's on the Empire Files YouTube channel. It's called Afghanistan War and Imperial Conspiracy. That was the voice of Mike Preisner. Mike produces invaluable video and podcast resources at Empire Files. Check out their work at empirefiles.tv and their Patreon at patreon.com forward slash empirefiles. 
You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.